This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Sam and I are continuing with our series, Desiring the Kingdom, which is a series of podcasts to go along with the series of messages being preached right now at Rio Vista Community Church. Uh, this series is based on First Kings and the first part of Second Kings. We're going to get a little bit of Second Kings, but we're looking at some of the kings of Israel, their stories and successes and failures, and understanding the ways in which those kings, quite frankly, fail to measure up. Um, and then contrasting that as we talk about the greater king, Jesus, the heavenly king. So uh, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 11, Sam, uh, we're going to be dealing with the end of Solomon's story. And it's been, uh, for me, it's been kind of a difficult thing to think about. We've talked about this over the past few weeks. Mm-hmm. We've talked about how um, Solomon had so much potential, and then he started off as this mm-hmm. humble figure, and God was, you know, God was so pleased with him and blessing him so well, and whatnot. And and now we're going to come to the to the end of his story, and I picture him as this sad, sort of lonely. Mm-hmm guy at the end, uh, despite all that God's given him. I think that's right, because he's lived this incredibly charmed life with all these blessings. And then you get to this chapter, and you get a glimpse of how at the end of his life, he becomes rather gross and wicked and totally self-absorbed and murderous even. You know, the man of peace is going to be you know, seeking to kill those that the Lord has anointed. I mean, he it's like a complete 180 from the Solomon that we knew in in chapter 3, and then it, he dies. And it doesn't say, you know, he saw the light at the end. We're, we're left to guess, you know, from his other writings that he had this redemptive moment. Um, and our only hope for him, I mean, people would be questioning salvation a lot more were it not for the fact that in – you know, before Solomon was born, God had promised David that his steadfast love would not depart from Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you would wonder if this faith ever really took hold and was genuine. But we will see Solomon again, even even though he <laughs> he ends with a major crash and burn. Yeah. So uh, setting this up, we have a description of Solomon's wives. It says, uh, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Um, that's quite an, a, a stage. <laughs> uh, I mean, the first thing that, that struck me here is that a lot of these marriages had to have been marriages just of political convenience. These had to have been sort of treaty sure. type things. I mean, that's isn't that kind of what the who were princesses is telling us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when it says you know that the seven hundred wives were princesses, 
I think what it's saying is Solomon is amassing all of these political alliances, and to solidify the alliances in the ancient world, you would marry your sons and daughters to one another. So if you wanted a, a peace treaty with Egypt, you would take the daughter of Pharaoh as a you know daughter-in-law to your son, the prince, and they would bind the bloodlines together to show that there was peace. And so Solomon, 700 wives. I mean, he doesn't have 700 neighbors. Um, so in some sense, a lot of these are, are political. You know, he's marrying foreigners. But in other senses, I think it's just Solomon has reached a stage of his life where <laughs> there's there's no limits of excess. You know, he takes on an additional 300 concubines, and we don't know why that is, but these are women that would not have been given the same status as a full wife, um, but is somewhere in between, you know, like more than a girlfriend, <laughs> less yeah. than a wife, yeah. you know, but has legal obligations to the household. Um, and so it, he's just – he's becoming gross. He's pursuing physical appetites here. I mean, this is – let's – I mean, Solomon no was a guy that got around a lot apparently. No question. And, I mean, we'll see later on in this passage that even beyond the 700 wives and the 300 concubines that he's pursuing um, cult prostitutes in all likelihood. So, I mean, he's got this lustful appetite that goes beyond his wife. And, you know, there's there's an old adage that says, you know, if you can't be satisfied by one wife, you won't be satisfied by a thousand. Yeah. And, and the idea behind that is – you know, God has given you the gift of a wife. And if you go and you look at Deuteronomy 17, 17, the Bible actually commands, particularly kings, do not take many wives. Like it's it's an admonition against polygamy, particularly for the kings of Israel. Do not do that. And here Solomon is, you know, absolutely defiant of God's command and he's taking on tons of wives and tons of concubines and then pursuing other women even beyond that. And it just shows, you know, one, Solomon has an incredibly lustful appetite. Yeah. That that much is absolutely clear. But I was reading one commentary, and I thought this was an interesting point, that in the ancient world, we've talked about this on past episodes, but the idea behind polygamy is women were so vulnerable in the ancient world that if you did not have a husband, um, you your, your, your life – was in a rough spot. And so Solomon is doing this as a self-aggrandizing thing. Like, look at me. I take care of 700 wives and 300 concubines. And look at all the children that I can support with my massive wealth. Look how amazing I am. Um, so it's lustful. It's pride-driven. Um, in a sense, he's he's almost becoming trying to position himself as God who's going to take care of all of these people you know, to his own glory yeah. against the command of God. I found myself uh, saying one time, I can barely keep one woman happy, let alone a thousand women. And then, <laughs> you know, well, and then it occurred to me that somebody who would marry a thousand women is not in the least concerned with keeping them happy. It's like I'm reading into yeah. that. I'm reading, I'm reading my monogamous sensibilities into this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's purely, purely self-serving. Yeah. I mean, this this whole relationship. So, I mean, you think about the the sanctity of the institution of marriage where God gives one man, one woman, binds them together. Um, and, and one of the most beautiful things about the institution of marriage, and this might be a little bit of a rabbit trail here, 
but it's to be the closest thing that we have on this side of glory to our relationship with God. And so when I go to my wife, she is the one person in this universe who gets to see – and this is going to be a disturbing comment – but who gets to see me naked in every sense of the word. Okay. Like she, she gets to know all of my fears. She gets to know all of my guilt and shame, and she gets to see all of the vulnerabilities – and yet she's the one person who said, no matter what, I will not leave or forsake you. And so, like, that's the covenant of marriage. You get to be free with one another. You you know, it's some, some place that you're safe with that person. And to have 700 wives, I mean, that's not creating security among these women. It's creating even more insecurity. Which one's his favorite? Do I measure up? Yeah. I mean, it's entirely selfish. It's despicable what he did to these women by bringing them into a polygamous relationship. God designed marriage to be that reflection of the gospel, and this is not that. I mean, Solomon may have given them nice dinners and maybe a nice home to live in, but this is does not resemble anything close to what the institution of marriage is supposed to be mm. in God's design. It's entirely selfish. Verse 2, where it says, From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, not just Solomon, you shall not enter into marriage with any of them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. What struck me when I read that, Sam, was that that it wasn't the other way around. In other words, God was like, don't marry these foreign women because they're going to turn away your heart. Why mm-hmm. wouldn't you marry these foreign women and turn their hearts towards your God? I, to me, it was it was almost like a... I don't know. It's kind of a sad commentary on the the hearts of the people of Israel that God was like, yep, if you guys get hooked up with some people that worship other gods, you're not going to turn them to me. You're going to wander away from me. Um, I thought that was mm-hmm. kind of an indictment against them. But it also gets back to kind of what we think. You know, we look at these old, you know, thousands of years ago and we look at their idols and we say, what primitive people that they would worship these things. Um, but in reality, like, they just had a mediator, you know. So, like, for example, Solomon is, will follow after the goddess Ashtoreth, right? Right. And she's the goddess of sexual love. We're going to come to her in the next verse. But she's the goddess of sexual love, and the way that you worshipped her was through cult prostitution. And so Solomon was all in for Ashtoreth. Um, but he's I don't think he's worshipping Ashtoreth. He's worshipping his lust. Right. And so we might not be so simple as to worship Ashtoreth. But we might worship, you know, our computer. You know, we serve online pornography or whatever it is that helps us to feed our lust. So back then, you know, it's what God is recognizing is all these idols, they don't love these idols. Yeah. They love what the idols promise to give them, which is lust, wealth, power. Those are still our idols to this day. We just don't have idols that, you know, we claim give us these things. But we're still worshiping at the altar of money. We still worship at the altar of lust and sex and power and fame and all these things. We're no, we're not any more moral than they were then. Uh, we may have dropped the the official idols or statues, but man, we worship all the same stuff they did. We chase after it without pretense. Yeah, God. What God is saying is like all these idols. You, you, this is just the Psalms say that the people create the images and the idols in their own image, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. and what what that means is, if I'm going to create a god that I'm going to worship, it's going to be pretty 
weird how all the things that he wants from me, I want to give. You know? <laughs> like, oh, you want me to come and engage in cult prostitution? Funny. I have no problem with that. Sure. You know, and so these people are going to turn your heart away because all of these other gods are just figments of your imagination that are change, chasing after human passions anyway. They're inviting you to revel in sin. And of course, that's going to be more alluring. If God, you know, if if a God always agrees with you, he's not your God. Right. <laughs> you know, he's a figment of your imagination. What makes the God of Israel challenging is he's coming to people saying, you need to deny your sinful nature. You need to fight against what you want for yourself and trust me for a better design. And it's much harder. But if you're chasing after these idols that promise you everything you want and any debauched way to go after it, of course you're going to want to follow after them. Oh, sure, that sounds good. <laughs> you know, you're you're chasing after your own desires. So what you're saying is that it's not likely that the god Callus of Dutius, the patron god of video games, who wants me to worship him <laughs> by playing Black Ops, uh, that's probably not a real god. That's yeah, it, but that's it, exactly that's my point. Yeah, but is it like oh, you mean? You want me to sit around all day and play this game? I mean, it doesn't require you to sacrifice anything that you don't want. Right. And so back in those days, um, it was much easier and a lot more fun, at least immediately so, according to the flesh, to chase after these kinds of gods. Yeah. I was also struck that uh, about the fact that God is so concerned about the heart. You know, it's like, okay, you Solomon no doubt committed grievous sins here. A wedding with temple prostitutes, whatever he did, there were physical acts of sin that he committed. But what wounds God is that his wives turned away his heart. I mean, verse four says that mm-hmm. when, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. It's, you know, Solomon is going to do things that are offensive to God, but what what wounds God is when you let your heart be turned away from him. It's a, it's a bad thing that Solomon did, but to me it's kind of a, a sort of a beautiful thing that what God really wants more than anything else is your heart. There's people like, I can't do for God. I can't be, you know, I'm not a great teacher or a speaker or I have no skills. Like what God wants from you most of all is your heart. I mean, he'll use whatever else that you have. You surrender to him. That's fine. But what he wants is your heart. I've always found that yeah. to be special. Yeah, and when you give him your heart, it's it's it tends that he develops gifts with a heart that's surrendered. That's true. And so, like, you know, I, I love to teach. But if I didn't love the Lord, I wouldn't love to teach. Right. You know, like the reason why I love to teach and the reason why, you know, I want to train and get better at this is because I love him and I want other to people other people to see how amazing he is. But the heart has to go first. Yeah. Um and that that's always gonna be the case. And there's something interesting in this line where it says his heart was wholly true to the Lord his God. His and heart was not wholly Hebrew, true. It literally means, you know You yeah, read it right, as right, his right. heart was wholly true. But it true. says as was right. I read it backwards. So but it, then it says as David's heart was. Right. And the there's only three people in all of Scripture where it says their heart was holy for the Lord, like mm-hmm. pursued with all their heart. It's David is one, mm-hmm. and then the other two are Joshua and Caleb. 
And wow. the interesting things, you know, those, those are the other two. Those are the two guys that when Israel is for the first time coming into the promised land, everybody else is terrified of all these other nations that worship these pagan gods. And they're saying, we can't do it. We'll never take them. And Joshua and Caleb have absolute faith in the God of Israel, mm. that he is far above these other gods and far above these other nations, and he will deliver us safely into the promised land. And I thought that was interesting that even from the beginning, that that description is given to people who trust God to deliver them way more than they fear uh, all the other nations and all the other gods. Hmm. Um, and that, that was certainly true of David. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you think of him going after the Philistine, you know, yeah. Goliath. But it's my God will deliver me. Hmm. And Solomon apparently does not have that. So now we get the uh, a bit of a laundry list of of what Solomon did. Verse 5, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the uh, abomination of the Ammonites. <laughs> the abomination of the Ammonites. Um, so Solomon – I just like that's a – that's not a good thing to be called. If you're the abomination of the Ammonites, yeah. you're probably not a nice guy. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. We have some additional stuff here. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. we got more abominations. And for Molech, he's a good guy, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. That's a, that is like a hit list of bad gods <laughs> yeah. we've talked about Those molech are, is the is the child sacrifice one right mm-hmm. yeah and and shamash as well both of them involve child sacrifice molech for sure um but one of the things that they believe happened is molech and shamash you know these child sacrifice gods you know one culture would pass down to the next and these gods reappear in other cultures and so when you get closer to jesus's time the worship of of Moloch is continuing in a place called Carthage, and we have writings from there. Mm-hmm. And um, he's he's worshipped by a different name, but one of the, it tells you the way that they would worship. And it's this is a bit alarming and a little gross, but they would put up a statue of Moloch, and he would have his he was a statue made of bronze, and he would have his arms outstretched in front of him like he was waiting to receive a gift. And the back of him. They would have a furnace that was glowing un- underneath him, and when it was time to do worship services, they would light the furnace, and because bronze is kind of a softer metal, it would start to glow rather easily, and it would look like the god was coming to, to life. And being that one of the one of the elements that they reigned over was fertility, the people would come and they would offer children and the arms of Moloch and the the children were heavy enough to where the soft bronze arms would start to drop like he was receiving this child as a sacrifice and eventually the child would roll down the arms into the flames of sacrifice and they would celebrate. Um, and there was a, a, a famous historian who went to Carthage and was just chronicling all the different places in the Roman Empire in the first century and this is during Jesus' lifetime. And he goes to Carthage and he says that what would happen is the people weren't sacrificing their own children. Of course not. But the wealthy would go to the poor and they would buy their children. And part of the deal so that the wealthy would not have to feel guilty in making this transaction is you would not get your money if you let out what's – what. and this is the direct quote from the – 
the historian is they would offer up their children without tear or moan. And so these poor people would have to sell their children to be sacrifices for the rich who worshipped Moloch in Carthage. And so I imagine going back – and now this is similar to exactly what Solomon is paying to build these shrines on the Mount of Olives. And this is the kind of stuff that they were worshipping. And Solomon is emptying his own pocket to pay for the worship of these kinds of gods. Um, so you can imagine, you know, the the Solomon of of chapter three is distant mem- distant memory. I wanted to ask you a question about that because you can almost understand Solomon saying, "Hey, this god has temple prostitutes, and I like women, and I like having sex, and so I'm going to go chase the temple prostitutes." But the rest of these. I guess I've been saying I could kind of understand a guy with his sexual appetites being attracted to a, a false god where you worshipped by having sex with a prostitute at the temple. But what mm-hmm. what would possess any reasonable person to say, oh, it's it's fine to do this? Solomon went and, and did this, set up these things for child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That's the part I'm having trouble with. As I'm looking at this, how could you, you know? So this is one of those things that's it's really hard for the 21st century mind to wrap our our heads. I am struggling around. obviously. <laughs> but this shows you the impact that the gospel has had on the world because if you go at any point throughout history at any culture, I mean even even in Indian culture as the British were colonizing India, you know when the husband would die and in, in a lot of those cultures they would take the wife and the children who were still alive and burn them alongside with the husband when he died on a funeral pyre mm. because it was seen like what value do they have you go to the roman world at the time of jesus and the practice of exposure was rampant where they you know if you didn't if the father decided he didn't want one of his kids they'd leave him out to fend for themselves as a newborn on a wall or in a on a street and you know trust that they're going to die or the gods would save them so they would sacrifice the spartans did it you go everywhere throughout the ancient world and cultures where the gospel hasn't brought this Western ethic that gives value to every single human life, and you find this kind of absurdity everywhere. Um, you just do. Yeah. And so when the gospel comes along and we're taught that everyone is made in the image of God, that every life is valued, that the poor are valued, that the sick are valued, all of a sudden it's like, I, we can't imagine this. Um, but – at the same time, you go back into the ancient world. They did not have a value for life. You know, it's, a, yeah. it's think a thousand years before Rome is, you know, choosing which babies to keep or not. Or, you know, in Sparta, if you had a deformed baby. And the Roman law, the Roman tables of the law, if you had a deformed infant, you were required to kill it. Well, if you have a deformed infant in Solomon's day, you go to the statue of Moloch, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, even – and and I don't want to use this as a as anything to to guilt anybody, but you know there's there's studies that have been done that show if if a, if a baby in utero is diagnosed with Down syndrome, there's a ninety percent likelihood that that baby will be aborted. Mm-hmm. And so there's still some sense in which we have we we determine the value of a life based on their ability. Mm-hmm. You know, we still struggle with that, even even with a Westernized ethic. You know. But if you went to Solomon's day, gosh, you, we have no understanding of how much the gospel has done to change the world. 
this would not have been uh, <laughs> scandalous to any other culture but the people of God. Yeah, I, I hear um, that, and I un- I hear that. I understand that. But Sam, this is the same guy who knew that the value of that child would reveal the, the true mother. This is the same mm-hmm. guy. This is Solomon. He knew the, what the what the worth of a child's life was to their to the mother. I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. just, I, I I don't know. Obviously, I want to beat up on Solomon some more, but I just don't understand. <laughs> I can, no, that's I, a good point. I can understand him chasing after something that satisfied his own appetites, but this kind of stuff where he's chasing after these gods for whom you worship them by sacrificing children, that's the part where... If it wasn't for certain other verses that we've already talked about, I would be like, yeah, I, maybe we're not going to see Solomon in heaven. Yeah, if it wasn't for those other verses, I would I would probably land on the other side of the coin. You know, like I'll, I'll be surprised to see him in heaven if it wasn't for those other verses. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's stunning to me. And, you know, this is where like everything inside of me needs to say you know, humility, you know, like yeah. you're you're. You got all the same sinful nature rooting around inside you, Sam. Yeah. Um, but yeah. when it becomes about me, I'm capable of all of this stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. That is true. And it's, it's, it's very frightening sometimes to think about the fact that the overt behaviors that, that I'm obviously so indignant at Solomon about that mm-hmm. I have that same, I mean, what do, do do I do enough to care for children who need help? When you change what your ultimate is, um, you know, if if your ultimate, you know, the defining mark of what makes life valuable to you, you know, as a Christian, you would say it's the Lord. And therefore, his desires have to reign supreme. His desires are more important than my desires, even when they conflict. Like, he has to win out. I'm going to yield to him because he's God. But anytime you see cultures throughout history – where the, the the plumb line, the, the ultimate, becomes something other than the Lord. You see all these incredible things. I mean, think of Germany, and we're only talking, you know, 80 years ago. 80 years ago, when Germany was considered to be the most advanced Western nation, it was producing the best philosophers, it was producing the best engineers, the best scientists, the best art. Uh, well, that one might be debatable, but <laughs> Germany – was top of the class in Europe, and they became nationalistic. They walked away from the Lord. They began tearing down crosses. They began outlawing, you know, reading of the Bible because it was Jewish or whatever the case might be. They put their eyes on a different ultimate, and look what they were capable of. And this is in the modern world. We're not talking ancient people that are primitive. And what were they doing? They were taking grown men, adults, children, putting them in gas chambers. I mean – when when we think that the heart of man is no longer as wicked as it used to be, we're fooling ourselves. The yeah. only reason why we see any more common grace in the modern world than back then is because the gospel has reached more hearts. But the moment those hearts turn away from the gospel and they put up some ultimate that does not value human life, something that degrades human life, human beings are capable of anything. And if we yeah. deny that, we're we're fools. Yeah. History has proven it. That's true. So uh, verse 9 tells us what happens as a result of that. It says, and the Lord was angry with Solomon, kind of like I am, but 
he's the Lord, so he's going to be right. His anger is righteous, whereas mine's a little bit like self-hypocritical or something. Because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. I think it's interesting there that it notes that, you know, it's like it's, it's recorded. They're like, hey, you know what? The Lord appeared to you twice and told you himself not to do this. What's interesting to me here is that I've had people from time to time who have sort of hinted at or outright said that, you know, if God would just tell me what he wants or if if God would just, you know, how do I know he's even there? If, he, if God's there and he wants me to believe in him, why doesn't he just show up? You know, I've heard I've heard people say that, you know, and and. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy that had God show up in person twice and tell him mm-hmm. exactly what he wanted him to do, and yet he did not keep what the Lord commanded. So this idea that, well, if if God showed up in person and told us what he wanted us to do, then we'd do it. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. <laughs> we absolutely would not. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Certainly didn't rub off. It certainly didn't stick with Solomon. You know, and this is one of the things like this, this used to really, really bug me that if Solomon was so wise, if he's the wisest man who, who lived until Jesus and he turned away from the Lord as like, how does his wisdom lead him there? And the takeaway is not that, you know, it wasn't wise what Solomon did. The takeaway from the story of Solomon, at least one of them is that wisdom alone is not powerful enough to overcome the sinful nature mm. you can't you can't read enough books you can't study enough under gurus you can't you'll never ever fill your brain with enough firepower to overcome and conquer the sinful nature of the human heart it mm. will not happen um, and and so that's good you have Solomon shows us that you can't you you can't be a big enough brain to overcome the sinful nature, you need a savior. You need the power of his spirit at work in your life. You can't do it on your own, no matter how much, no matter how much wisdom you have. Yeah. No matter how many times God appears to you personally. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no matter how many visions you have, no matter, like, you cannot do it in your strength, yeah. period. So then we have uh, the Lord says to Solomon in verse 11, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." I'm reading that passage. I, what struck me out of that was this idea that God withheld a portion of his judgment against Solomon. It's like he was going to judge Solomon, and yet he held back a portion of that judgment for the sake of King David. And I thought, what's beautiful to me about that is that I believe God is withholding all of his judgment now for the sake of Mm-hmm. the heart of Jesus for the sake of King Jesus. It's like mm-hmm. Jesus is such a greater king than David that how do, how can I possibly believe that God can withhold all of his judgment for all of the things that I have done wrong? It is because Jesus is that much greater than David. 
He's mm-hmm. that much better of a, of a protection, of a wall, of a bulwark. Jesus can keep us safe, mm-hmm. you know, despite how, however bad we are. However much we deserve judgment, he can keep us safe. And that's why one of, one of the things that you'll find emphasized throughout the New Testament that you see repeatedly, you know, we find our salvation in him. Like, look at look when you're reading the New Testament, especially the epistles, look at how many times it calls on you to do virtually everything in him. And so the idea behind that is you're not doing anything isolated. You're not doing anything going before God saying, hey, look at my record. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> no, yeah. you will end up as a pile of ash. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like it's going before the Lord and saying, I'm in Christ. This prayer is offered in his name. My performance is in his name. My inheritance is in him. My hope is in him. Everything is in him. Why? Because when the Lord looks at him, he delights and so for the sake of Christ, if you're in him, you receive the blessing. You receive favor. You receive mercy. And, you know, it's like you said, David, I mean, <laughs> David stumbled and he was a mess too. Yep. But gosh, he loved the Lord. He and did. he was tender to the Lord's calling. And just that little bit, I mean, we think about it and what, what God will do for Christ. But one of the questions that I think is interesting, of course, this is a king and it's David. But it does make me wonder, like, if I plead for my children as a father, you know, will will he show some special measure of mercy to them for my sake if I chase after him like David? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if this is a one-time deal because it's David, and I'm certainly not David. Yeah. Um, but I love that God shows that kind of covenantal faithfulness. Hey, yeah. because your dad loved me so much and cared so much about you. I want to show you mercy. You know, we have that infinitely in Christ. But I do wonder, you know, if God offers special dispensations of mercy based on our love for our own. It's it's an interesting question. It is an interesting question, and I think that you could say that even if there was no other sense in which it was true, it is true in the sense that if if a father has a, a heart that is completely, you know, given over to the Lord and is 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 praying diligently uh, for a, a child, that there are many benefits that extend in that covenantal mm-hmm. family relationship from the from the parent to the child that come from the parent's devotion to the Lord and commitment to praying for the child and 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 bringing them up in the way they should go um so even when it's not necessarily the withholding of divine judgment i do think it's probably fair to say that yeah the lord does uh, you know show yeah. some mercy in that respect because that child is in your family you know, and it's just experiencing that. I it's certainly a good enough reason for me to continue to pray for and hope for my own children. <laughs> um, you know, mm-hmm. that, that if having children, I will teach you to pray. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a powerful motivation. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I like that. So then he goes on and he starts talking about raising up adversaries. Beginning in verse 14, it says, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. And then it's interesting because the next thing he tells us about Edom kind of, you know, it's like, okay, we can understand maybe why Hadad didn't like David. So for when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. 
But Hadad fled to Egypt, together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. So they, you know, this is kind of like one of those movies we watch where the bad guys come in and everybody gets killed and the child escapes and grows up with this sense of vengeance, you know, and, and if I, if I spell the script out that way, Sam, I'd be like, I'm on the child side. I understand him, you know, um, but, yeah, that's not necessarily the right interpretation here, or is it? I mean, is 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 David telling Joab, "Hey, go in there and kill them all"? Was that a good thing? Was that yeah. the Lord's command, or what? The way that that I read it, and Joab, you know, if if you know the story of Joab, he is constantly doing his own thing, yeah. kind of almost in rebellion to David. Yeah. So, for example. When David's son Absalom rebelled against David and sought to seize the throne, David pleaded with Joab, do not kill him like he's my son. I'm hoping for his redemption. And Joab, of course, hunts him down and kills him. Um, you see you see Joab being kind of ruthless. That's his reputation. When he gets an opportunity to really put it to somebody, Joab is kind of a ruthless, merciless yeah. figure as a general. And so my impression when I read this is Joab is just kind of out filling a bloodlust on his own. So it might not have been David's command. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm sure David wasn't saying, oh, be nice to them. I don't I don't, <laughs> right, <laughs> I don't right, think right, that right. would have been the case. But I think Joab is like, I'm going to wipe every one of them out. Yeah. I'll, I know how to handle subduing a people. Watch this. Uh, yeah, so. exactly. So uh, it says that Hadad set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage to the sister of his own wife, the sister of Topanes, the queen. And the sister of Topanes bore him Jenuboth, his son, whom Topanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Jenuboth was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. So as I was reading that, a couple things occurred to me as I was looking through that. One of the things was that Solomon had an alliance with Pharaoh. Was this the same Pharaoh you think that Solomon had the, was married to the daughter of? Probably the same Pharaoh? Probably. Probably. Shishak. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. So there was an alliance already there with Solomon. So it's unlikely that Pharaoh wanted to see Hadad attacking Solomon, but there was an alliance with Hadad as well. You know, it's like, I think, I think Pharaoh's doing a little bit of double dealing here. Do you think so? Okay. Absolutely. So, so look, this is the way. And so I'm thinking, you know, modern day newspaper kind of how this plays out. The way that I see it is Solomon comes to power. David has shown himself to be mighty. All of the major empires of the world are kind of shrinking at this time we've talked about. And so Pharaoh thinks, I'm going to get in good with this guy and build an alliance. I'm going to give him cities and my daughter and all this kind of stuff. Then Solomon grows and he becomes the the superpower of the region and he is a big threat. And so now I think what Pharaoh's doing, because now Solomon controls the trade routes that Pharaoh would use to go east. Solomon controls most of the industry. Solomon controls this and that and the other. And I think what Pharaoh is doing is he's looking for cracks in the superpower. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's doing is saying, I am going to take these 
adversaries, which, by the way, the word that's used for adversaries of these three guys that are they're going to walk through Hadad and Jeroboam, and then uh, the next guy, Razan. Yeah, Razan. When it uses that word adversary, that's Satan. You know, they're like it's Satan is the word that we get, but Mm -hmm. it's adversary. And so what I think Pharaoh is doing is he's kind of nursing and protecting them as this animosity builds, and he is – I think he's harboring them to give it a chance to put a crack in Solomon's hold. Mm. So I don't think Pharaoh is a friend at all of Solomon. I think he's watching his own interests, taking from Solomon what he can get, but hoping that the cracks that are beginning to form take Solomon's kingdom down so that Egypt can once again become the big dog on the block. Mm. So verse 23, it says, God also raised up as an adversary to him, Razan, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. I love these names. And he gathered. You're doing good. This is good. Well, you know what? I'm impressed. I I, I have no idea what they're supposed to be, but it sounds good to me. I rehearsed. (laughs) I read the chapter out loud before we sat down to do this. I was, I was, I normally stumble so bad on these. I said, I'm going to figure out something for each of these names before we get started. (laughs) Preparation. I was prepared. And he gathered men about him and became the leader of of a marauding band after the killing by David. So again, David's one of the things we talked about with this when when we kind of got into this story of Solomon is that Solomon was allowed to build the temple because there was not a lot of blood on Solomon's hand and David was a man of mm-hmm. war. I mean, his heart was given to the Lord and we know how much that meant to God and we saw how close that they were and everything else. But there is something to be said about the consequences of being a man of war as opposed to some, a man of mm-hmm. peace. I mean, the, David and David's you know, descendants suffered some consequences for David's decision to settle many things by the edge of a sword. Um, and this mm-hmm. is yet another example of it. David, you know, David made this enemy, you know, and now it's going to come back against Solomon. Um, and it says, and they yeah. went, they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Sadad did, and he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Um, so, you know, kind of one of the things we've talked about too is the, the peacefulness of the kingdom. You know, it's like, oh, he had peace on all sides. It sounds like mm-hmm. there was stuff fomenting out there, though. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't quite as peaceful on the borders. Yeah, I, I think you know if you used us as an example, you know, I, I would say that you know when the fall of the Soviet Union happened, we became the sole superpower in the world. Right, and there were some people who really celebrated that and who felt safe with it. But there were a lot of countries and still are a lot of countries that are biding their time, hoping that we fall apart. Right. And and I think that's I think that's what Solomon was facing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so then we hear Jeroboam here, which verse 26, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zerah, a widow, also <laughs> lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. So finally, we're going to have a reason. You know, it's like, and it didn't involve David killing somebody. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. Uh, why do you think that was a reason that Jeroboam was opposed to Solomon? What was the? We talked about the millow being these terraced gardens type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just I mean, you can if you look up a Google pic, it'll still show you what the mellow was. Why was that a reason for Jeroboam to be angry? So the best commentaries that I've read, and I think it makes the most sense, is Jeroboam is playing the populist leader. 
And so Solomon comes along and he says, you know what? The city's messed up. We got all these building projects. Jeroboam, you're going to be the one who's in charge of all the labor unions and forced labor, by the way. And so what happens is Solomon, we'll find out in the next chapter, works them to the bone. And Jeroboam, you can kind of tell, is pulling his best Jimmy Hoffa (laughs) saying – no, 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 we need a better deal. You're working us too hard. And he begins to just despise someone and speak out against him. It says that he lifts his hand against the king even. And the name Jeroboam, um, most Hebrew scholars believe that that name will translate to mean strength of the people. And so even the name is a nod toward the fact that he's this populist leader and hmm. he's taking all of the oppressed you know, that have been worked to the bone. And he's like, all right, workers of the world, unite, <laughs> you know. And he's he's leading this rebellion of people who feel like they're exploited as forced labor, and he's kind of rallying them. Which doesn't that make what Solomon did here very, very interesting? Verse 28, it says, The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So it was kind of like mm-hmm. Jeroboam was sort of, you know, it's it's kind of like one of those stories, like you made a, a comment about him being sort of a union leader. It's one of those things where what do you do when you have somebody who's representing the workers? You make them part of management. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. all right, I'm going to bring you on the inside here, make you part of management. So you're going to maybe start seeing our side of things here a little bit. Do you think it was maybe a move like mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I think he was super popular with with the workers. I think he was kind of a man of the people. And so it's like, hey, he'll be good. He'll He's able to rally the people to get these projects done. And so then Jeroboam, I think, this is kind of my mind's eye into the situation. He begins to get all the favor of the people, and he wants to you know, leverage that to kind of work against Solomon. Yeah. I mean, the, the story that comes to mind is like you know, when General, General MacArthur in World War II goes into the Pacific, he's got his own ideas of how to do things, and he begins to rub against President Truman – um, and how he's going to do things in the Pacific. And eventually, even though MacArthur is wildly popular with the troops, Truman has to relieve him because he's swaying the troops. And so there's this division in leadership that's happening where MacArthur's kind of – he's got the souls of the troops. But Truman is like, all right, you're using that against me. I'm going to relieve you of command. <laughs> that's kind of the situation I imagine here between Solomon and Jeroboam. Mm-hmm. So it tells us that uh, it, when it makes reference to the house of Joseph, is that uh, I guess the commentaries I was reading was saying that that was probably the Ephraim and Manasseh um, mm-hmm. areas. It's like that was the the two sons of uh, Joseph that were given land as if they were Jacob's children. Jacob brought them in and made them part of the blessing. So is that really that's just kind mm-hmm. of identifying the reason there? That or do you think yeah, there was something more to so. it than that? Okay. If you looked at a map of where the twelve tribes are allotted, the the territories of Manasseh and Ephraim are disproportionately large, and so this this would have been a very powerful position, and probably next to Judah, the 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 tribe with the most influential cities would have been Ephraim, I'd say, mm-hmm. and. So he's he's got a very powerful position. Mm. So verse 29 tells us, And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. This is an interesting story. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, 
I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. We have the whole list here again. Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you... And you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So, kind of a big encounter there, but first of all, is my math wrong? He he tore his garments into 12 pieces. There's 12 (laughs) tribes. He said, I'm going to give you 10 tribes, but one tribe, I'm going to leave with the other guy. Where's number 12? So, the 12th would be Benjamin. Okay. Okay. And I'll, I'll explain real quick. So the, there's the northern ten tribes, and then the southern two tribes are considered to be Benjamin and Judah. And so the reason why Benjamin always gets kind of folded into David as one, the territory of Benjamin is this tiny little strip that's just north of the territory of Judah. So they're already connected territorially. But the other reason and the more profound reason is if you go back into the story of Judges, with well, a terrible story that happens from Judges 19 forward, what had happened was in, in the days before King Saul and the, at the end of the reign of the Judges, all of the tribes came together and they went after Benjamin and Judah led the charge to avenge a woman who had been raped and murdered by a city in Benjamin. And Benjamin decided, hey, we're going to protect these rapists. And so the rest of the kingdom said, or the rest of the tribe said, well, if you do, we're going to come in and bring you justice. You can hand over the rapist or we're coming for you. And they said, well, then come for us. And so Judah and the other tribes come in and they commit a mass genocide. There's a lot of this going on in today's episode, but anyway, (laughs) um, they commit mass genocide to where they leave. I think it's only 300 men of the tribe of Benjamin. And to where so to where all the rest of these tribes have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of men in their population, Benjamin had all but been entirely wiped out. And so they were just thought to be kind of absorbed into the tribe of Judah. I mean, they were pretty insignificant in terms of population, even though they did keep their distinct identity, like the Apostle Paul will brag that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, but those will be the only two tribes, um, really, that s- survive. The northern ten tribes all get wiped out by the Assyrians later on. Hmm. So, in a way, Benjamin was uh, – in effect, they were, in one sense, kind of fortunate being attached to Judah because then they weren't a target of the Assyrians. Mm-hmm. Well, the Assyrians will target them, but God <laughs> will say, no, 
Yeah. <laughs> you are not going to conquer them. God slaughters the Assyrians and protects Judah and Benjamin together. The other thing that struck me about this was that um, through Ahijah, God essentially made Jeroboam the same offer that he made to Solomon. I mean, it's like God gave him this chance to to have this great relationship in this, you know, if you will listen to all that I command you, will walk in my ways, do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house mm-hmm. as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. It's like that's you know, as we've one of the things we've kind of talked about sort of through this chapter is this idea that um you know, people are are making these bad choices. I mean, Jeroboam here is he's got the he's being given by God the opportunity to have the same standing well, you know, to a certain extent at least as David did. God saying, "I'll take care of you like mm-hmm. I took care of David if you do this." And yet, we're going to see in chapter 12, we're not there yet. Spoiler alert. Jeroboam makes a bad decision. So, you know, again, yeah. we've got another one of Master. these guys where it does not matter what God promises them, Sam. They just choose the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, Jeroboam has put in the same situation as David as well. So uh, this is uh, – follow me here. When when David is a young shepherd boy and he kills Goliath, he's brought into the camp or into the throne room of King Saul. You know, and he plays the harp for him, and eventually Saul becomes so jealous of the popularity that David has with the people, he does what? He tries to kill him. him, yeah. He wants to kill him. And, and David runs away, and you remember throughout the story, he has a couple of opportunities to kill King Saul, but what does he say? I will not put my hand on the Lord's anointed. And he trusts, even though he's been anointed, remember, the prophet Samuel has come to David and said, hey, I'm going to take the kingdom away from Saul, and I'm going to give it to you. And so David trusts in that promise. He doesn't try to force God's hand. He doesn't put his hand to the Lord's anointed. He waits on the Lord. And so when Saul dies, David comes to the throne, and he tries to build up Saul's family, and he shows compassion to Mephibosheth and Saul's family, and he does this incredibly godly thing. So think that story, and you get the same thing happening, except now it's Solomon who is being compared to King Saul, right? Yeah. God has come to another guy and said, hey, I'm about to tear the kingdom away from Solomon, and I'm going to give it to you, Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam, it says he, you know, he was raising his hand to the king. He was actively plotting against Solomon, unlike David, even out of the gates. But it's crazy to me that Solomon is very deliberately being compared to King Saul at mm. the end of his life. You know, he's going after, trying to kill the one that the Lord has anointed. Think about what that says about Solomon. Yeah. You know, if Solomon was aware of this prophetic <laughs> declaration that, that Jeroboam was going to take the throne and he says, oh, no, he's not. Solomon's not just at war with Jeroboam. Solomon is at open war with God himself. Sure. So the end of the chapter now, verses 41 to 43, now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? That's a rhetorical question, I presume. Um, and the time, because I don't know the answer to that, I guess the answer is yes. Um, and the time that Solomon... Yeah, we don't know what the book of the acts of Solomon. 
Yeah, we don't know what that is. Uh, it, it, that's a, and that's kind of an interesting thing in and of itself because there's, and I'll actually be talking about this a little bit as we're getting ready to do, uh, shameless plug here, as we're getting ready to do the next essential series, um, <clears throat> coming up, uh, the Sunday after Easter, I guess we're going to start with that. And I'll be, I'm actually going to be teaching that. And one of the first days I'm going to be talking about is how did we get our scriptures? How do we know these books are inspired? Where did they come from? Um, because that's, Part of the importance of theology and doctrine is knowing about the Bible and mm-hmm. how we got our Bible and how we know that the manuscripts that we have are, are accurate copies and we have good translations and those sorts of things. And uh, there's a lot of other books that were history books that were not inspired. I mean, there was just a there were many, mm-hmm. many, many, many things that were written down and records of things and uh, and you see these things referenced in in different books that are part of the canon of Scripture. So it's not unusual to mm-hmm. encounter the name of of another book like this. Um, and it says, in the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. I, you know, I, I feel like I want to exhale here, like, oh, we've gotten to the end of this thing with Solomon. Um, and yet, it's like, I also feel this sense of foreboding because, well, some of it's because I've already read chapter 12 and I know what Rehoboam's going to do. <laughs> but you also feel like, um, I don't know. It's like when David died, it, it felt like it was a sad thing almost. Like there was this, it, it mm-hmm. just felt like a big thing. David dying was a big thing. It was covered and written about in a certain way. And with Solomon, it almost feels like, at least to me, it feels like an afterthought, an asterisk. And Solomon died, which is the way a lot of the other kings were treated. A lot, you know, most of the time when we get to the end of the story of a particular king, it's and so and so died and slept with their fathers or whatever. It's just sort of exactly like we have here. But with David, it was different. David is just, you read about the, the circumstances of David's death and you can just feel that it was sort of a bigger deal among the people. And um, I just feel like, man, for all of Solomon's prowess, for all of his wisdom, for everything else, he threw it all away. And by the end of the time, he just kind of became, yeah, he was king and he's dead and he's gone. And it's like a little asterisk and we move on to the next guy. Mm-hmm. Feels like an ignominious end yeah. to me, Sam. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that dies along with him as the Lord pronounces judgment, you got to remember, God has been talking about establishing this nation going all the way back to Abraham. You know, so uh, a thousand years, probably a thousand plus years before Solomon, God had started making these problem promises to Abraham. Then, I mean, fast forward hundreds of years, and he's talking to to Moses about this nation that he's going to create and all the allotments of land and, you know, what the king is going to have to do. He lays out all of the the requirements in Deuteronomy of what the king is going to look like, and they have, you know, a couple of generations of this kingdom and Solomon's mocking the Lord tears it asunder. At this point, the 12 tribes of Israel will never, ever again be reunited on this planet in a kingdom. Um, and so what does that mean? It means that the 10 tribes that break away to the north never worship the Lord in, in, in any kind of orthodox way. They establish idols out of the gate. They become you know, this wicked kingdom filled with assassinations and horrible idolatry and you know, the prophets that are writing to them, it's always for their extreme wickedness. None of the righteous kings 
reign in the north. They all reign in Judah, what few there are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so with the death of Solomon in this chapter, I mean, it's such, it's such a – we just went through a chapter, right, and it's gone. But in this chapter is the death of a dream, a promise that came to fulfillment and was squandered. You know, a, a promise that was made a thousand years earlier that the wickedness and selfishness of one man, one king, squandered for the whole nation. Mm. What weight. I mean, you know, thankfully, we have one king who restores not only the tribes of Israel, but all the nations under one banner. Um the banner of the gospel, the banner of Christ. He he brings unity to all people, and he is he's the fulfillment of every part of where Solomon failed. You know, we've talked about this before, but where Solomon hoarded everything for himself, Jesus comes and gives it away. Where where Solomon, you know, took care of his inner circle and you know neglected the far off and the less fortunate. You know, Jesus blesses his inner circle to go after the far off and the less fortunate. I talked about this in my sermon where where Solomon drinks out of cups of gold. Our king drank a cup of wrath. I mean, Mm -hmm. think about that. The selflessness of our God, of our king. Why did he drink from a cup of wrath instead of a cup of gold? Well, it was so that he could bring all the children Mm. back into the kingdom. Like that's just – that's mind-blowingly kind how mm-hmm. good our God is. Um, but, you know, where where we kind of mourn, we see this promise slip through the fingers of Solomon and all of Israel pays the price for it. You know, Jesus, how much greater that he has restored it all and not just for the children of Israel, which I would not be a part of. I'm a Gentile. Right. But he has grafted us in. He's grafted us into the kingdom. How amazing – He's he's really wonderful, and and not just bring together the nations of Israel, but then bring together people from every tribe and nation. You know that that his church mm-hmm. is the it, it made up of the entire world. I was just going to say one of the things that I thought you know, and this this idea occurred to me on Sunday morning before I got up on the the stage to preach. But one of the differences between Solomon and Jesus. Is Solomon used these unbelievable blessings? I mean, this this kind of supernatural wisdom that God blessed him with, and he always used it to enrich himself. Mm. You know, so when people would come to him, you know, he'd get gifts of gold and industry and you know power and all these kinds of things to bless the nations. You mm-hmm. know, he would enrich himself. But Jesus comes and goes to all the nations and makes an offer of salvation and he pays the cost. Mm. He he's not enriched by blessing us. He mm-hmm. pays an enormous cost. You know, he he will stand before God and give away even his righteousness in the moment that he's crushed with wrath for our poverty, mm. uh, our sin. And he makes us rich. He became poor so that we can become rich. I mean, he's a he's he is such a better king than Solomon. I mean, it's it's just when you stop and think what a hero he is. I mean, really, in the truest sense of the word, he's a hero because he became a servant to make us royalty. Mm. Like, who, what better king could you ask for? Yeah. Well, and that's a good word, and I think that's a good word to uh, to let stand as our last word for this week because uh, it's a word. It's a hopeful word. 
Well, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, uh, that it's been profitable for you. Um, we do invite you to correspond with us, as always, if there's something that you're interested in regarding a podcast, something we say that prompts a question, or you'd like to share a, a comment with us. Our email address is outofwater uh, at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. Uh, that's also where you can find all the back episodes of Out of Water at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, and on Spotify, or in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Uh, Sam and I will return next week with 1 Kings chapter 12 and the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Um, and I guess we can just give them a little bit of a spoiler and say that we've decided if your last name ends with, or if your name ends with Boam, you're going to make bad choices. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.